are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of St. Luke. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today to cover the following three topics. From Luke chapter 23, verse 32 through chapter 24. Jesus' last words. Second, Jesus dies and is buried. And third, the road to Emmaus. Tune in at this time each week to hear more lessons from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study. Produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Scripture reveals that Jesus speaks seven words from the cross. Church tradition speaks of these as seven words, and people sometimes are a little perplexed initially because they look at what Jesus says and they can see that it adds up to more than seven words. But it is that sense that we discover in divine revelation, for example, when God reveals the Ten Commandments, he speaks ten words, so to speak. There is a way in which, when God speaks his word, there is a completeness in the one word. And so the church, even in speaking of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, refers to this traditionally as the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. The seven words that Christ speaks from the cross are referred to then as the seven last words of Christ. And the saints down through the centuries have meditated upon these words. They are words that we should all meditate upon because as God approaches the completion of his plan for our salvation through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ, He speaks these final, these last seven words to us. And the seven, of course, is indicative of a kind of completeness in itself, the fact that there are seven. But we should ponder them because in them is contained important revelation with the mystery into which we have been inserted in Jesus Christ. So that there is a way that By pondering them, we can never exhaust the mystery of these seven words. Now, the seven are not all recorded in any one of the four Gospels. In fact, we have to take the four Gospels together to arrive at, to to receive the seven words. Matthew and Mark record the one word of Jesus, by which he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? St. Luke records three of the last words of Jesus. And these three we will look at in the three parts of question number one. St. John records also three words of Jesus. The first being when he says woman to his mother, to Mary, 
Behold your son, and he says to John, Behold your mother. He is essentially giving us all to his mother, to to the church. He says also, I thirst, and at the completion of his suffering on the cross, he says just before he expires, It is finished. Now the first of the words that St. Luke records of Jesus' final words on the cross is this. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we look at what St. Luke is writing, the criminals have been brought to Calvary with Jesus, and he tells us quite simply that when they reached the place called the skull, the skull refers to Golgotha. It was a place then called the skull. Golgotha is actually from the Aramaic word, which means the skull. It was a place known by this name. St. Luke says, There they crucified him with the two criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now, the Gospels record how, in this time on Calvary, the Jews in their hatred, even in seeing how appalling, how horrifying Christ looked in his humanity, because in him has been the fulfillment of the scriptures, of the prophets, which said that that he would be treated in such a way that he would no longer look like man, that he would look so disfigured that people would be aghast at looking at him and that they would avert their gaze, they would turn away their faces because they would not be able to sustain looking upon Jesus. After his scourging, his flesh was virtually torn from his body. He was scourged and beaten, revealing the bones even in him. It would have been quite a sight. And the criminals, the thieves, the bandits, being crucified on his right and left, even they would have been aghast at seeing him. In light of this, it's even more amazing what Scripture tells us that throughout this time as he is dying on the cross, the Jews are mocking him, holding in him in contempt. They are challenging him that if he is the Son of God, if he knows God as he says he knows him, if he is the Christ, to save himself, he saved others, he cannot save himself. If you have power, because they had seen his miraculous powers, then come down off that cross. They mock him, they jeer at him. The guards do the same thing, and even the bandits do. And this is important. St. Matthew records that both of the criminals, the bandits, being crucified with Christ, they were both mocking and holding in contempt Jesus while he was being crucified as he was dying on the cross. Jesus, in speaking this word which St. Luke records, Father, he is speaking then to God. They would have sensed even, certainly the bandit at his right senses this, that he is speaking to God, that he is saying to the supreme being, the Jews, of course, believed in the one true God, but even among the Gentiles, even many of the Greeks had this understanding of a God of all gods, a supreme being, so that they believed in Zeus as sort of a supreme God. It was a pagan sense of that one supreme power over all other powers. And Jesus speaks to God, the Father, and from the midst of this horrifying passion, 
What is it he has heard to say? Forgive them. This is what he says, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is an amazing moment, and a, a moment after which the thief changes his response to Jesus. Matthew has told us that both were participating in the mockery and the jeering. But it is after this when the thief on Jesus' right side says to the other who is still mocking Christ, he says, have you no fear of God at all? We know that we're guilty. We know that we have guilt. He says, but this man, he has done nothing. And he senses that by mocking Christ, he is doing something that so defiles himself in his human nature, so defiles any understanding of the dignity of the human person, that it lacks all holy fear of God. Even this criminal can understand this much. Now, the point, the first point to be made here is this. Jesus is the revelation of the mercy of the Father. He is the revelation of the forgiveness of sins. As scripture says, while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, God offers us the gift of forgiveness. In this, God shows his almighty power. It requires more power to forgive, to love one's enemy, to forgive while another still hates and mocks and holds in contempt a person, while that person is still trying to destroy you, to love and to forgive even before that person has changed his mind or his heart. This is why the church in the 26th Sunday in Ordinary Time begins Mass by praying, God, you show your almighty power above all in your mercy and forgiveness. What we are to understand in this is that if we live by the Spirit, the power of the Spirit that we can lay hold to is the power of the risen Christ, the power of the revelation of God in his mercy and forgiveness. It is so powerful that it not only, it not only transforms us, it liberates us, it frees us, it heals us, but it is powerful in bringing about the kingdom of God in the world. Jesus says many times in his public ministry, he has this teaching about, with his apostles, his disciples, about the need for us to forgive, to forgive others of their sins. And his disciples want to know the parameters of this, the boundaries of this. How far should we go in this? And Jesus makes clear that there really are no boundaries to this because there are no boundaries to the love of God revealed in Christ the Son. This is the mystery. This is why it is love which conquers sin in the world. It's love which conquers death. And if we want that power to be alive and at work in us, then we must love as, as Christ loves. We must forgive even before the other person has admitted to wrongdoing or asked for forgiveness. Because this is the kind of love that changes hearts. This is why in our humanity, it is only too easy for us, it is natural for us in our fallen state, to cling to unforgiveness, 
to cling to the hostility, the hurt, especially when the other person has not even acknowledged the wrongdoing, the harm they have done us. And so we are asked to forgive, and it's difficult for us, and we know, we sense that that God is prompting us to this kind of forgiveness in our heart, but we hold on to our unforgiveness, and we come up with little arguments like, but if they only understood how what they did to me so many years ago nearly ruined my life. If this person would just admit to what he's done wrong, if this person would just show that he has a change of heart and start acting differently, then I could forgive. Then it would be easier to forgive. But this is not the kind of forgiveness that God has shown us. God has shown us this unconditional forgiveness. Now the key is in the power of this. The key is in the power. And this is why this is why all the great intercessors of salvation history, beginning with Abraham and Moses, and down to all the saints in the age of the church, they understand this because they understand something of God. They understand the love of God. They have true knowledge of God. This is why Jesus says, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They don't know you. They don't know love. They don't know the truth about God and the truth about the human person. And because they don't know this, they are acting in ignorance. Forgive them so they might be transformed and they might have life. So the great intercessors know this. They understand that God is love. And in understanding this, they understand that God is righteous, that God is faithful to his word. They understand that God cannot contradict himself. He is revealed. He has revealed who he is as love. He has revealed the promise. He can't contradict that. He cannot go back on his word. As St. Paul says, even if we are unfaithful, God is faithful still because he cannot contradict himself. So they understand what God himself reveals in making his people his own, in giving them, in revealing to them his name, that his glory is at stake. That God will be true to his promises. He has the power to do so. This is why the great intercessors, having knowledge of God, are so bold as to stand in the breach and intercede for God's enemies, for the wicked, because they love God and because they therefore also love his people, even when his people are rebellious, even when his people are wicked, even when God's people are enemies of truth and justice and love. The faithful servant, the servant of love, stands in the breach, so to speak, as if there is this this abyss, this chasm between God and man, and God is threatening to destroy man. What he is saying, of course, is you are in the process of dying, of being destroyed because of your wickedness. The faithful servant, Moses, does this with Israel, stands in the breach. He stays the hand of God. He puts himself between God, who is about to strike his people, and his people, who are ignorant of God. And what does Moses say? He reminds God of what God himself has revealed. He reminds him of his faithfulness. He reminds him that his glory is at stake. He says, if you destroy your own people, what will the Egyptians say? Moses said, this is bold. But the bold intercessor 
speaks this way because he has a certain friendship with God, an intimacy with God in his relationship. And he says, what will the Egyptians say? That you brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and that you swore to give them this promised land, but you couldn't do it because your people rebelled against you? What will they say? Moses is reminding God that his glory is at stake. This is why scripture says that God cannot forsake the people he calls his own. He cannot forsake his own name. We, we are people by the name of God. We are called Christians. God cannot forsake us. It's not possible. So God is, by revealing this powerful mystery of forgiveness, he is inviting us into living according to the real power of God, the power of his spirit, which is a power of love and mercy and forgiveness. So powerful is it that if we have even a keyhole of space open in our heart to receive this kind of love, it changes us of a moment. It transforms us. It conquers the hardness of heart, the blindness, the sin within us. This is exactly what happens with the thief at the right hand of Jesus. After he has just been sharing in the passion, the crucifixion of Christ by how he is treating him, what does he say? He rebukes the other who has this contempt for God, and he says to Jesus, he calls upon the name of the Lord. He says, Jesus, the very name Jesus is prayer. It's a plea. It is calling out to God. Jesus, the name Jesus, reveals that God is salvation. In essence, the thief is saying, by saying Jesus, he is saying, God is my salvation. I place my hope in God. What does he say? Jesus. He must have been so amazed by what Jesus says from the cross. Forgive them. He sees what Jesus looks like. He sees the suffering. He sees what's happening. And what does he see Jesus do? What does he hear God say? Forgive them. They don't know what they do. He wants to be like him. He wants to know him. All of a sudden, he's thinking, this man is the most amazing person I've ever met. That this is how he responds to what's going on around him. And so he says, he makes this act of faith, and he says, remember me. All he says, it's a small plea, and yet it's a very great request. But he just says, if you would but remember me. When we say, as human beings, we say to someone, remember me. The person's going to, they're moving to the other side of the world, and we may not see them for 20 years or 30 years. And if we were to say, say a prayer for me, or remember me at some point, there's something momentary and fleeting in that. But with God, when he says to Jesus, remember me, he is asking in his remorse, in his contrition, in his humility, he is asking him simply to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. The thief knows that if this person merely remembers him, that somehow he is going to be all right. That somehow Jesus' remembering him is going to change what is happening this moment.
in his own crucifixion, that it will somehow make it different. I mean, what a profound act of faith. And what does Jesus say? Again, it's one of his last words on the cross. He says, In truth I tell you, you will be with me this day in paradise. Now in this, God is revealing how he responds to an act of faith. He gives us heaven. He gives us the whole mystery. Even in the last moment of our life, to repent, to turn to Jesus, to ask in faith, to ask God to save us. God is faithful to his word. His mercy is immeasurable. He, of a moment, gives the whole kingdom of God for a simple, single, sincere act of faith. As scripture tells us, as the church reminds us constantly, God hears and responds to every act of faith. As God reveals through the prophet Isaiah, even before you have begun speaking, I have heard you. And before you have finished speaking, I have answered you. Now, Jesus, as St. Luke says, just before he dies on the cross, before he expires, he says in a loud voice, he calls out, Father, verse 46, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And with these words, he breathed his last. Now, in this loud cry, as the church tells us, all the troubles of all humanity, all the pleas, the intercession, the cries of God's people, that reaching out, all of them are summed up. They are within that final loud cry of Jesus to the Father, who gathers everything all the prayers and cries and entreaties of humanity, he gathers up in himself, he sums up in that cry, and he commends his spirit to God the Father. This is a profound moment just before the death of Jesus. And the Father accepts all of them, without exception, he accepts all because they are prayed and cried in his son and the son dies and enters the tomb and from the moment of his death until he is raised on the third day there is this silence that falls over the whole of creation but as the church tells us the father accepts all of our prayers and petitions and cries in Christ and answers them by raising up the son That's the answer the Father gives to our prayers and our entreaties. He raises up the Son. It's powerful. And what is the answer? Eternal life. That is the Father's answer when he raises up the Son, eternal life. We know that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. We know this. Christ reveals this. And yet he also reveals that he comes not to judge, but to save. We live in the age of mercy. But we are called to be configured to Christ and to reveal the mercy of the Father and the forgiveness of sins to the world that all might be saved. God is counting on his people to reveal this to those who are still outside salvation. This is why it is while we are still sinners, 
We were all this when we were offered the gift of God's salvation in Christ while we were sinners. And once we understand this, we are touched by it and it changes our lives. It completely changes our lives. And we then want to live it fully. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Luke from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. Up next, Dr. George will be covering the following topic, Jesus Dies and is Buried. And now, back to Dr. George. Christ, as Scripture reveals, truly suffered, died, and was buried. We say this over and over again in the creeds which we profess, as we say in the Apostles' Creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. As we repeat every Sunday in the Nicene Creed, for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, and died. Now why do we say this over and over again? It's not for the mere matter of reminding ourselves of what we already know historically to be true. God wants us to ponder the mystery of the death of a son, of the suffering, the death, and the resurrection. We are to ponder the mystery of the fact that he truly died, and he was buried and remained in the tomb until he rose on the third day. Now, in speaking of the death of Jesus, we have to recall, it's difficult for us to understand, but not if we consider it in light of the divine person of the incarnate word. Jesus is a divine person, a divine person who possesses a divine and human nature. Now, we are made in God's image and likeness. We are not divine persons, we are human persons, comprised of body and soul. The components, body and soul, make up the single unity of the human person. When the body and soul separate, we die. The soul is that which gives life to the body. Every soul that God creates is immortal. All souls he creates. Once he creates a soul, the soul lives forever. The soul may live in heaven at the end of time, after the judgment on the last day, or the soul may live in hell, but all souls created by God will live forever. It is the soul which gives life to the body and not the other way around. The body cannot live without the soul. Death is the separation of the body from the soul. When they are separated, the soul, of course, goes on living, but the body dies. In fact, we say that the soul is the form of the body. Now, that may seem odd to us initially because we are people of perception. We are people who live so much in a physical, tangible world that we tend to think that the body is the form of the person. But that's not so. If we speak theologically and philosophically, it is the soul which is the form of the body. Jesus is a divine person. We're human persons. We participate in God's divine life. We share in it. But even in participating in God's life does not make us a divine person. We are human persons who share divine life. Nevertheless, 
the early church fathers in their boldness of speaking of the mystery of the resurrection would say, we're deified, that we become not only like God, we become God, we become gods. They are using that kind of bold language in order to emphasize the mystery. They're not saying that we are God, in fact, but they're trying to, they're using hyperbole in a sense, to actually make us grasp, to help us grasp the profundity of the mystery, because there is a way in which we become godlike. And so this is the meaning of it. Nevertheless, only Christ, in his humanity, remains a divine person. The mystery of the death of Christ is this, that when Christ is in his dead state, his human body and soul are separated. He is truly dead. But in that state, the divine person continued to possess both his human body and his human soul. The divine person continued to assume, we can also say, his human body and his human soul. And this is why, this is one of the reasons, that Christ's body is incorruptible. Because it's the body of a divine person. It's also a point we should understand that in Scripture, God always talked about how on the third day there would be the resurrection. There's always a sense of the third day, even in the Hebrew Scriptures, because the Jews understood that the body did not begin to corrupt until the fourth day, which makes the mystery of Lazarus, Jesus is raising him from the dead, mysterious because he had gone past that point. And they said, don't remove the stone, there will be a stench, my Lord. So God is still Lord of the whole created order. But it is only fitting and proper that Jesus be raised from the dead on the third day. In any case, he is incorruptible. His body is incorruptible because it is the body of a divine person. The state of the dead Christ is the mystery of Holy Saturday. It's a great mystery, something that in our whole lifetime and pondering upon it, we cannot exhaust this beautiful mystery. Jesus fulfills the words of the psalmist in this mystery. When the psalmist says, I set the Lord ever before me with him at my right hand, I shall never be disturbed. My body too abides in confidence. The psalmist says, God is already speaking about the mystery of the resurrection of the body. My body too abides in confidence. He says, because you, O Lord, will not abandon my soul to the netherworld, or suffer your faithful one to undergo corruption. So this is fulfilled in the person of Christ. Now, Jesus, just before he dies, commends his spirit into the hands of the Father. We need to reflect for a few minutes on the Holy Spirit. Jesus alludes to the Holy Spirit in his public ministry, but the Holy Spirit is not fully revealed until the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus does not promise to send the Holy Spirit until just before he enters his passion. Now, the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity. He is God. The Holy Spirit is God. There are three persons, and the three together are one and equal. The Holy Spirit is one and equal with the Father and the Son. In this, too, we profess in the creeds what we believe about the Holy Spirit, because we cannot forget the Holy Spirit 
is the third person of the Trinity, as we say in the Nicene Creed. The Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds, that's important language, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. The Holy Spirit is one equal person in the triune God. One God, it's a great mystery, one God, three persons. The three persons always act together throughout salvation history, even though there is a certain order to the revelation. They act together while at the same time manifesting their own proper characteristics. And this is another part of the mystery that God teaches us about himself. If we meditate upon what God reveals about himself as Father, as the only begotten Son, and as the Holy Spirit, sent by Christ and also sent by the Father. As with so many other aspects of the mystery of salvation, in theology there's so often a both-and, because we're limited beings and we talk about God in limited ways in our human language. So that, on the one hand, we talk about God, who has revealed himself as the origin, he's the first principle, he is the origin of the whole divinity, so that there is a way in which he sends the Spirit, because Jesus himself talks about this, that he must leave the apostles. He says he must leave them so that the Spirit can be sent. Now the Father sends the Spirit in Jesus' name. But Jesus sends his Spirit. We speak of the Spirit as the Holy Spirit, but we sometimes say Christ's Spirit, Jesus' Spirit. It's one and the same. He sends the Holy Spirit from the right side of the Father. It's both of these things. They both speak a truth about the mystery. And Jesus says, he must leave so that we can receive the Spirit. We like to think that it would be great to have Jesus living on earth in human form with us, but he makes clear to his apostles, he says, I must go so that the Spirit can be sent. There's a certain importance There is something powerful that happens when we learn to live according to the Spirit. In a sense, we could say it actually calls out of us more faith. The apostles wanted to have Jesus return and stay with them and talk to them and eat with them. And he he came back to them in those 40 days following the resurrection. But he said, I have to go because they need to learn how to live according to the Spirit in faith so that we do not see God, and yet we do see God. We know him. And he says that he will send the Spirit. Now, only as he approaches his passion does he speak fully and openly about the sending of the Spirit. When Jesus, at the hour of his death, commends his Spirit into the hands of the Father, at that very moment, he is about to, momentarily, pass through death, So that at that moment, by his death, he conquers death. So that, being raised to new life by the glory of the Father, he can immediately send his Spirit. 
The church speaks of this in the catechism and uses the word immediately. And it is true, is it not? St. Luke speaks of this, St. John even more pointedly, how on the same day as the resurrection, and the evening of that same day, St. John writes, the apostles, the disciples, were gathered in a room with the doors closed for fear of the Jews, and there Jesus was among them. And what does he say? Peace be with you. He next shows them, he comes in bodily form, and yet it's glorified. The glory remains veiled, and yet he is present in a form other than the form they knew him prior in his earthly form. And he shows them his hands and his side. In this too, there is a great mystery. The glorified Christ has his wounds. We see the wounds which are the glory of Christ. God is telling us about the wounds of our own suffering and passion. If we configure our lives to Christ, that the passion we undergo, the crucifixion that we undergo in this life for the sake of Christ, the wounds that we receive because we suffer for the sake of his name, those wounds are our very glory in heaven. And there is a way in which those wounds will be visible on our glorified body. Think of the martyrs and how they have suffered. And at the end, when the bodies of all are reunited to their souls, we will see the mark of their martyrdom, of their sacrifice on their glorified body. It will be to their glory. What a beautiful thing that God is revealing. Think of the the dignity, what he says about our earthly life, how God has this incredible respect for the earthly life of man and the suffering that we undergo for Christ's sake. So he, he says to them next, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And St. John records that having said that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit now that he is pouring out upon his church. And as the church tells us, from that hour onward, the mission of Christ and the Holy Spirit becomes the mission of the church. I mean, what an amazing thing happens here. The mission of Christ and the Holy Spirit become the mission of the church. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We participate in this mystery in our baptism. First of all, what is baptism? It is It efficaciously signifies, so it's something real, even though it's veiled in mystery, it efficaciously signifies our descent into the death, into the tomb of Christ, so that we can be raised up. Now, the death that we live is a death to sin, as Scripture points out. In baptism, baptism is, as we pointed out in other lessons, we die in baptism. It's that first death we pass through. That's the difficult one. That's the truly miraculous one. Well, both are truly miraculous, but in that one, we are made new creatures. 
We are restored to eternal life because before that time, our soul, our soul is dead. In other words, it lives, but it has no life in God, in the spirit. The spirit is not in the soul. So we enter into the death of Christ. What we are doing is being inserted into the mystery of Christ. So that with and in Christ, hidden in the divine person, so to speak, the Father raises us up to new life. This is what happens in baptism. It's absolutely amazing. We die, we descend into the tomb, and we are raised up new creatures. So that we now live as incorruptible. The body, we know, suffers. The body dies. The body corrupts. We know this according to the natural order now. People say, well then, how is it the body becomes incorruptible? Jesus already tells us. He says, you must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood to have eternal life in you. We eat the incorruptible body of Christ and we become what we eat. That is why St. Irenaeus, speaking of this mystery, says, just as bread that comes from earth, because what are the signs? What are the gifts we bring forward in the Eucharist? Bread and wine, which will be transformed truly, substantially, into the body and blood of Christ. So, just as bread comes from the earth, after God's blessing has been invoked upon it, it is no longer ordinary bread, but Eucharist, formed of two things, one earthly, the other heavenly, so to our bodies, which partake of the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, but possess the hope of the resurrection. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Luke from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering The Road to Emmaus. And now, back to Dr. George. At the end of St. Luke's Gospel, he presents to us an incident of Jesus meeting some disciples on the road to Emmaus. It is an account given only by St. Luke. We do not find it in the other Gospels. And it's very beautiful. In this account, again, it is on the same day, the day of the resurrection, two of the disciples are leaving the city of Jerusalem, dejected, downcast, forlorn, because of the events that have taken place. And they're talking about all this, They're on their way to the village of Emmaus, which is a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears in their midst, and he begins walking with them, and he asks them what they're talking about. And they're surprised. Cleopas, one of them, says, he says, you must be the only person in Jerusalem, because they're walking along the road. He believes Jesus, too, has just come from the city. He says, you must be the only person in the city of Jerusalem who does not know what has taken place these last few days. Jesus says, what things? And they proceed to tell him how there was this man named Jesus who was powerful in deeds, in his actions, and in his words. And they believed, they hoped that he might be the one to save Israel. In other words, that's cold language for saying they hoped he would be the Messiah, 
the one who would deliver them in fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. And he says, but he was condemned to death and two days have gone by and there were women who early this morning went to the tomb to find him and he was gone, but they came back telling us that they had seen angels who said that he is alive. So others of our group went to the tomb, but they found nothing there. And this is when Jesus says, you foolish men, you are so slow to believe the scriptures. You are so slow to understand what God said all along from the beginning, that the Christ must suffer and die. And then scripture tells us, then beginning with Moses and going through all the prophets, Jesus explained to them all those passages that were about himself. What an amazing homily this would be, how we wish that the evangelists might have recorded Jesus' own homily, so to speak. It's really, in essence, the first homily Jesus gives after having been raised from the dead. Because what happens at Emmaus is really the celebration of the Eucharist, as we discover. When they arrive at the village, it seems to them Jesus is going to go on, but they press him to stay with them. And he does. He goes in, and as scripture tells us, they sit down at table, and the very language of it is the language of the Last Supper. It's the language of the Eucharist. And he took bread and said the blessing, and then broke it and handed it to them. And their eyes were opened. As scripture says, they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Now that is highly important for us. The apostles understood, first of all, that that Jesus at the Last Supper fulfilled that traditional sense, that rich sense of Jewish meal, how the master, the head at the table, would sit, that he would bless the bread and thank God, he would break it and distribute it to those in his family, those among him, and they would eat of it. It was a ritual, a rite of deep meaning. How this was fulfilled then in the Last Supper, and now it is occurring again in the village of Emmaus. And in that moment, they recognized Jesus in the breaking of the bread, which is another reason that the early Christians, beginning with even the day of Christ's resurrection, begin speaking of the Eucharist as the breaking of the bread, a phrase which comes down to us to the modern day. Now, it is the breaking of a bread, the bread, something which begins as earthly bread brought to the altar of God, but is transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, by Christ himself acting in the minister of the priest, and is changed into Eucharist, into Christ's own body and blood. And it is distributed so that we can eat of Christ, that we can eat his flesh, as Christ told us. So they speak of, the church has always spoken of this breaking of the bread, but when we speak of it in reference to the Eucharist, we capitalize that B, because this is bread from heaven, holy bread. It is the sacred bread of the body of Christ. So in this mystery, we, we even have the good fortune of having a document from St. Justin, who was a second century martyr, who in writing to the Roman emperor Antoninus Pius, explained to him this rite, the Eucharist, the breaking of the bread, 
We are fortunate that he wrote this letter, perhaps it was even at the request of the pagan emperor, who wanted to understand what it was that Christians were celebrating every single day. This rite that they had, this liturgy that they had. So he writes it, and the church, in fact, has included a good part of it in the catechism. We can read it in paragraph 1345. And to read a section of this document, written about the middle of the second century, about 155 AD, to read it is to read a description of the sacrifice of the Mass we celebrate to this day. The point being, the Church is making this point, it is exactly one and the same. It is one and the same liturgy as Christ revealed at the Last Supper, as he celebrated with his disciples in the village of Emmaus, as the church celebrated from the very earliest days and has continued to celebrate, unchanging in its fundamental form up to the present day, and it will remain unchanging until the end of time. Now we know that the Mass consists of two basic parts. We have what we call the Liturgy of the Word, which is the first part of the Mass, and the liturgy of the Eucharist, which is the second. Now, the two parts together form one single act of worship. In the beginning, the liturgy of the word, there is the gathering of the people. St. Justin himself speaks of this. There is the gathering of the people. There are the readings, the readings from, from Scripture. We have the reading from the Old Testament. Then the people of God sing a song. We have the reading from the New Testament. And then there is a homily, and St. Justin says that the one who presides over the assembly speaks to them and encourages them, exhorts them, teaches them, enlightens them, what we now call today a homily. And then there are prayers of intercession on the part of the faithful for all people, not just their own, but everyone in the world, because God loves everyone. And then the second half of it is the liturgy of the Eucharist itself. Both of these occur at table, so to speak, the table of the word and the table of the bread. But it is the one table of the Lord. And in the liturgy of the Eucharist, we have the presentation of the gifts, the signs of bread and wine. And then we have the prayer of consecration. We have the consecratory thanksgiving and the confection of the Eucharist, where the bread and wine actually and truly is changed. And then we have the culminating point, Holy Communion, where we eat the body and drink the blood of Christ himself. As St. Luke tells us in Acts of the Apostles, and this comes right after he has just described Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all nations, and That day, 3,000, St. Luke says, were added to the number of the Christians. This little group of Christ's disciples, 3,000 were added that day. He goes on to say that these first Christians in this community of believers, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers. This is his description, and this is what we do down to the present day. The Church, in talking about the incident at Emmaus, 
within the context of the Eucharist itself, says this, Is this, meaning the Mass, is this not the same movement as the Paschal meal of the risen Jesus with his disciples at Emmaus? In other words, is this Eucharist which we celebrate, is this not the same movement as the Paschal meal of the risen Jesus with his disciples? Walking with them, he explained the scriptures to them. This is the liturgy of the word. Jesus is with us. He is walking with us. He himself is speaking. When we hear the gospel read, it is Jesus we hear. It is Jesus we hear. Under the appearance of, a, of another man, of another voice. But in faith, we know it is Jesus we hear. It is Jesus we are already seen. He is walking with us as he walked with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. The church goes on. Sitting with them at table, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them to eat. Sitting with us at table, at the Eucharist, Jesus himself accepts that bread. He blesses it. He thanks the Father and glorifies the Father. And we do the same in him. He breaks it. And that breaking is symbolic not only of the, the broken, the passion of Christ and the breaking of his body, but also the breaking so he can distribute it so that although we are all one, we are all single members, we are nevertheless one loaf of Christ, one bread, one body. It's very symbolic. So he breaks it, and Christ himself distributes the bread from heaven. He feeds us himself. He feeds us himself in his own person, but he feeds us himself, his own body and blood, the Eucharist. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. This concludes the Gospel of St. Luke. We hope you have enjoyed listening, and that you'll join us next week when a new series will commence. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. Real Presence Live is now coming to you five days a week, bringing you new hosts including Father Paul, Father John, and Joe Rutten, Father Craig Vosick, Father Tim Buren, and Father Kyle Metzger from brand new locations including the University of Mary in Bismarck, Mount Marty College in Yankton, South Dakota, and the Church of St. Michael in Pine Island, Minnesota. If you're looking for hope, tune in to Real Presence Live, where you'll hear positive and inspirational stories weekday mornings from 9 to 11 Central. 
Real Presence Radio wants to honor our fathers. As Catholics, we see our priests as spiritual fathers. We have so many great priests in our listening area who model and guide us to a closer relationship with our Heavenly Father. Each week on Real Presence Live, we will honor our spiritual fathers with a dozen donuts donated by a local business to share with their staff. And of course, a good father would want to share. Let us know who you would like to honor. And each week, we will draw a name to share stories of great spiritual fathers. Visit yourcatholicradiostation.com to honor your father today. Are you thirsting for God's love, His mercy, His forgiveness? You'll find that and so much more at the Thirst 2019 Eucharistic Conference at the Bismarck Events Center, Friday, October 25th through Sunday the 27th. Guest speakers include Dr. Edward Sree, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, Curtis Martin, and Kendra Tierney. Daily Mass, Adoration, and Confessions are available during the conference. Register now online at bismarckdiocese.com slash thirst2019 and download the Thirst app. One of the things that I see happen is, let's say somebody's been listening to the radio and they pick up an idea, they then sit down with their friends at coffee or over cookies and bars, whatever, and they're talking about it, and that item, then they say, well, let's call Father and get a little, let's double-check that. Let's get a little deeper view on it. But also, when it comes to the events, for example, we have a group here, and they look at the faith, and then they move deeper into it. What is the reason for this? Why do we Catholics believe this? And as that group has grown, they've brought others in. They've talked about it. They're reaching out. And it actually evolved into a street ministry where they stood down by Paul and Babe with a cart, with some books, with some medals, with some rosaries, and they encountered people on the street. I was very impressed with that, very impressed that our people would move forward. Our Bible studies become stronger as people hear the word and then they share it with one another. Choose the number one nursing program in the nation at the University of Mary. The University of Mary is ranked number one out of more than 2,000 nursing programs nationwide. 100% of our graduates pass their certification on the first try. And University of Mary scholarships give you your senior year free. Choose the best nursing program in the nation, University of Mary. Check us out at umary.edu slash nurses. The only things hotter than the summer heat are the rates to run radio spots on the RPR network. That's not all. The signal of Real Presence Radio reaches an audience of over 2.1 million people across North Dakota, Minnesota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. Hi, this is Brett Byler, Area Account Executive with Real Presence Radio, and I want to help you grow your business in front of a very faithful customer base. Don't wait. Call me, Brett Byler, at 605-670-8333. It's the 63rd Annual PRCA Champions Ride Saddle Bronc Match, August 3rd at Home on the Range Arena. Top PRCA Cowboys compete for the title champion and collect thousands in prizes on the world's best bucking horses. Celebrate past champions or join in the live Calcutta of Cowboys on August the 2nd. The Champions Ride August 3rd at Home on the Range Arena. Exit 7 on I-94, east of Beach, North Dakota. Gates open at 10. The excitement begins at 1. Advance tickets and information at hotrnd.com. Real Presence Live is now coming to you five days a week, bringing you new hosts, new locations, and brand new segments, including Heart of Your Legacy, where, as the name suggests, we get at the heart of giving and how you can leave a lasting legacy, and Honor Our Fathers, where you send us the names of your favorite priests, and we offer special recognition and a dozen donuts to one each week. 
Real Presence Live, local, engaging, and live, weekday mornings from 9 to 11 Central.